Chapter 13 of Cuts by the County, or Grace Darnell, by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Love, see thy lover humbled at thy feet. The luncheon at Darnell Park that day was more cheerful than it had been since the catastrophe of nearly a week ago. For the first time since that awful night, the household had been bidden to hope, and hope filled the hearts of all, high and low. The countenance of old Perdue, the butler, gleamed with gladness as he poured out Colonel Stukeley's glass of manzanilla and gave his sweeping professional glance round the luncheon table to see that all things were correct before he retired to his own substantial meal in the housekeeper's room. Even Miss Darnell was amiable, and poor Grace was radiant despite those secret griefs which gnawed at her breast. I can bear anything, she said to herself, if my father recovers. She was dying for another talk with the colonel. She wanted to hear what news the detective had brought last night, and if any fresh circumstances had been brought to light bearing upon that horrible suspicion about Victor de Comelog. There had been as yet no opportunity for any confidential talk with her friend. He had been in his own room all the morning, and just as luncheon was over, and she was hoping to get a little walk on the terrace with her godfather, the butler announced Mr. Colchester, and at this announcement Grace flew upstairs to her sanctum, with as scared an aspect as if the man had said that smallpox or scarlet fever was in the drawing-room. Dora, always ready to do the honours of her brother's house, sailed off to receive the lord of the manor, while the colonel went to the stables to give an order for the dog-cart. He would drive himself, he told the chief coachman, taking only Nicole's with him. The cart was to be ready for him at a quarter to six. He was going to Scadley Station to meet a friend who would arrive by the seven o'clock train. The colonel's position, as Sir Alan's oldest friend, gave him a wide authority in the stables, and nobody presumed to question his orders. "'You'd better take Dandy, sir,' said the coachman. "'He's a good goer, and he don't mind trains.' Dora found Mr. Colchester in very low spirits. He was cheered by the good news about Sir Alan, but even that could not remove the cloud of gloom which hung around him as a garment. "'People are so damned ill-natured. I beg your pardon, Miss Darnell, only I have really no patience. They have been saying such things about this business, making a mystery of it, insinuating that it has something to do with Lady Darnell's past history.' "'Indeed,' said Dora eagerly. She had seen a few of her own particular friends since the catastrophe, spinsters of her own standing or elderly young ladies strong in tennis and piety, and to these she had unfolded her doubts, vaguely, mysteriously, alleging no evil but hinting at a great deal. And now, the bread she had scattered upon the waters was coming back to her tenfold. She was not deliberately malicious, she did not even know, in the depths of her own conscience, that she was acting cruelly and unfairly to Lady Darnell. She fancied herself a model of truth, justice, magnanimity. She told herself that in all things she was loyal and devoted to her brother— when she saw him cheated and opposed upon, it was her duty to defend him, to watch for him, to be his eyes and ears for whom a wild infatuation had made blind and deaf. "'A parcel of tabbies!' exclaimed the young squire, unconscious that he was alluding to Dora's chosen friends, the select and superior elements in county society, the handful of corn amid the chaff. "'I dropped in at Scoville's yesterday. Major Scoville was a mighty hunter. And there were a pack of women at tea, and they all set on to gabble about Sir Alan's danger. He was going to die, they were all cocksure of that, a set of goals, and then they began to wonder and to speculate.' How odd it all was, they had never liked Lady Darnell. They admitted that she was handsome, or had been handsome, but they had never been able to bring themselves to believe in her, though they had tried to do so for Sir Alan's sake. As if Sir Alan could care a hang what they believed. "'He has cared,' said Dora, solemnly. "'All men are sensitive on these points. Why, in France, half the duels one reads about are fought for no stronger reason. I told you the other day that my brother has suffered acutely from the consequences of his most unhappy marriage. Was there anything more said?' A good deal. They began to talk about some man, a young man, dressed no better than a tramp, but very good-looking, and with the air of a broken-down gentleman, who was seen near Darnell Park late in the afternoon, before the night on which Sir Alan was shot. It seems that Miss Mowbray and her sister Jane—you know Jane? As well as if she were my sister, she is one of the most truthful girls I know. I shouldn't call her a girl, said Edward, bluntly. Anyhow, she's quite old enough to know what she's talking about. She and Miss Mowbray had been out to tea— it is their normal condition, don't you know, to be drinking tea in somebody's house every afternoon. 
And they were going home in the dusk, and they were a little frightened, timid young flutterers, so that when a young man jumped up from the bank where he had been lying, they were ready to drop. They expected to be robbed of their watches at the least, but he only asked them the way to Darnell Park. He spoke like a gentleman, and he looked like a gentleman in spite of his shabby clothes. He was not dressed any better than a tramp, they say. That must have been a disguise, said Dora suspiciously. Precisely, the same idea occurred to me, said Mr. Colchester, also suspicious. That candid nature of his was getting perverted by jealousy. He was puzzled by the inconsistency of Grace's conduct. She had almost admitted that she loved him, and then had declared that she would never be his wife. There must be some reason for such a contradiction, and this shabby, good-looking young man lurking mysteriously in the neighborhood of Darnell Park might be the reason. Did the Mobays see any more of this man? asked Dora. He followed them a little way, and questioned them curiously about Darnell Park, where the family at home, Sir Alan, Lady Darnell, Miss Darnell. He seemed to know all about them, had their names quite pat. The Mowbrays answered him civilly, out of sheer funk. They thought he was a genteel beggar, who might change his mind any moment and go for their watches. They hurried home as fast as they could, directly they got clear of him. Now this fact, taken in conjunction with the nice attack upon Sir Alan, is certainly rather startling. "'It is more than startling,' exclaimed Dora. "'I have felt convinced from the very start that it was no common robber who entered the house that night.' And then she spoke of the footsteps which she had heard on the terrace between ten and eleven, the slow, stealthy tread, like that of a man pacing up and down, waiting and watching for his opportunity. No doubt that was the footfall of this very man. "'Who could he be, do you think?' asked Edward. "'Someone connected with Lady Darnall's past life,' answered Dora decisively. "'Some secret lover of Grace's,' thought Edward. "'His shabby clothes were only a disguise, you may depend,' said Dora. "'But the fact that the money was taken seems to point to a burglar,' added Edward, dubiously." The money may have been taken only as a blind, not taken at all, perhaps, only hidden somewhere about the room where it will be found later on. The man was a gentleman, he went to that room to see Lady Darnall, and on finding himself surprised by my poor brother, he shot him in order to escape recognition. Who knows what hatred and jealousy he may have felt against poor Alan, if he was, as I fear, a cast-off sweetheart of Lady Darnall's, jilted, perhaps, in order that she might marry my deluded brother. Dora Darnall put her little story together so neatly, had such a glib assured air in the telling of it, that Edward Colchester was almost inclined to believe her, and yet there were difficulties. This person was described as a young man, he said, and Lady Darnall is not a young woman. A former admirer of hers would hardly be a youth. Those Mobay girls were too frightened to be very good judges as to a stranger's age, and again some women have such perverse ideas. To my mind, Lady Darnall is just the kind of person to have encouraged a young admirer, and then to have thrown him over directly she saw a chance of a good establishment. You have not a high opinion of Lady Darnall, said Mr. Colchester, shocked at the undisguised venom of her tone. "'Has the county a high opinion of her? Have you a high opinion of her?' asked Dora contemptuously. "'I have always liked her immensely, but, of course, I would rather think ill of her than of Grace.' "'Of Grace?' screamed Miss Darnall. "'What has Grace to do with it? Surely you cannot suppose this man to be an admirer of my niece.' She pronounced the possessive pronoun as if the mere fact of relationship to her made wrongdoing of any kind impossible. "'I... I have been inclined to fear that he might have come here to see Grace,' faltered the squire, brushing vehemently. To see Grace? Impossible. It was in Lady Darnall's room that he was found. All Lady Darnall's conduct since that dreadful night has indicated a mystery. Never was guilt more plainly expressed than by that wretched woman's words and manner. Why, she started up in her sleep the next morning, screaming out that it was her fault, it was she who had murdered her husband. And that idiotic detective from London had chosen to start upon an entirely false scent. He has taken it into his head that Jaker stole the money, just because Jaker happened to change a twenty-pound note in the village two days ago. Did he? exclaimed Edward. That looks queer. Jaker is bad enough for anything. But Jaker would have no motive for breaking into Lady Darnall's morning room. He could not know that the money was there. There was nothing to take him to that particular room. Nothing except the fact that it is the most accessible room in the house, said Edward. I should like to see Grace if she would let me. She will not be quite so unhappy now that Sir Alan is in a more hopeful condition. Ah, there she is in the garden. I'll go out to her. 
If I asked to see her, I dare say she would say no. He took a hurried adieu and was off to the garden before Miss Darnell could say another word. He had caught sight of a tall, slim figure in the distance, rich brown hair blown by the autumn wind. Grace was walking up and down by the shrubbery, just where she had told him that his case was hopeless. She had flown up to her room to avoid him, as if he was a pestilence, and yet here she was, walking, where he could hardly fail to see her as he left the house. It was just one of those inconsistent things which young ladies of Grace Darnell's age are prone to do. Edward Colchester ran across the lawn and joined her. He ran his fastest, half afraid she would vanish amidst the wilderness of shrubs before he could reach her. She gave him her hand, frankly, and he took it, but with a certain coldness which startled her. His bosom was rent with horrible suspicions about that stranger whom the Mowbrays had described to him. Till those doubts should be satisfied, the master-passion jealousy took the place of the master-passion love. He made some commonplace remark about the improvement in her father's health, and then began abruptly to talk of the stranger who had met the Mowbrays. Grace's sudden look of fear at his very first allusion to this man told him that the man was no stranger to her. His doubts were too well-founded. The man had come to Darnall to see Grace. He must needs be some disreputable suitor whose acquaintance she had formed away from home, and who came by stealth to prosecute his suit or to complete his conquest. "'Your aunt thinks that this man came to see Lady Darnall,' he said. "'To see Lady Darnall. How wicked, how unjust! So like my aunt,' cried Grace indignantly. "'For what other purpose could he have come, except as a thief?' "'He is not a thief,' said Grace, beginning with a rush, as if to say a great deal and then becoming suddenly silent. For a moment, she had been inclined to say, "'He came to see me.' She had been tempted to tell Edward Colchester the story of her entanglement, the dishonoring chain which she had forged for herself. Yet, why should she so lower herself in his eyes? She had refused to be his wife, surely that was enough. She had sacrificed her own happiness in order to be true to that fatal promise. It was not for her to apologize for her folly to a rejected lover. To him she owed no allegiance. "'He is not a thief?' echoed Edward. "'How prompt you are to defend him. You know this person, then?' "'I'm not going to be catechized by you,' she retorted angrily. "'I would not presume to catechize.' Only you must admit that under certain circumstances a man has a right to be curious. Your father, my father's dearest friend, a man I honor and love, has been half-murdered. I am told of a young man who has been seen lurking about the park, in all probability the criminal, and when I mention the fact, you take up the cudgels in this man's defense. What can I think, Grace, except that there is a mystery here in which you are in some way concerned? You can think what you please, she answered coldly. I do not consider myself accountable to you for my conduct. And now I must wish you good afternoon. I am going indoors to hear the latest news of my father." A quarter of an hour ago, she was longing to see him. She had purposely put herself in the way of seeing him, and now she left him in anger, left him with his heart gnawed by jealousy. In the hall, Grace met Perdue, the butler, and from him she learned that Colonel Stukeley had gone out walking. This was a blow, as she was dying for a talk with her friend and counsellor. Lacking this comfort, she shut herself in her own room, restless, unhappy, and full of fear. The day wore on. Lady Darnall spent the afternoon in prayer and thanksgiving. Each new report from the sick room was more cheering than the last. Sir Alan was sleeping peacefully, the weary brain, so long tormented by the wild visions of fever, was now at rest. The tide had turned. Soon, very soon, Claire Darnall might hope to take her place beside the sickbed, to see the beloved face smile a fond welcome to the loving wife. Grace was on the watch all that afternoon for Colonel Stukeley's return, but to her surprise she saw him driving away from the house at a few minutes before six, his valet sitting at the back of the cart. This seemed a very mysterious proceeding. The dog-cart had not been brought to the hall door. The colonel had got into it in the stable-yard, and drove rapidly round the avenue and away, like a man who did not wish his departure to be observed. She spent an hour and a half of supreme anxiety, and at half-past seven a little penciled note was brought to her in her godfather's well-known hand. "'I am obliged to go to London, dear Gracie, in your interest. Don't be anxious. All will be well. It may be some days, perhaps more than a week, before I can go back to Darnall. 
Your scampish friend is alive, but in a very sad condition. I shall do all I can for him, and I shall not lose sight of him till I have obtained your release. So you may consider yourself free to be kind to poor Colchester. The man is not a Frenchman. You have, therefore, been grossly deceived by him, and that fact alone should cancel any promise you may have given him. Ever your faithful friend, W.S. Not a Frenchman, thought Grace indignantly. What an impostor, and he spoke French so beautifully and wrote such lovely letters. I dare say they are all full of faults and grammar which my ignorance could not detect. The colonel said not a word as to whether Kamelok was or was not implicated in the crime at Darnall. It was cruel of him to leave her unenlightened, Grace thought. The dog-cart had been driven back to Darnall by a man from the station hotel at Scadley. The colonel sent a second little note to Dora, apologizing for his abrupt departure, and asking her to telegraph a daily bulletin to him at the club, where he would breakfast every morning. He had a pied-à-terre in the shape of a second floor in the neighborhood of St. James Street. Three days had gone by since the colonel's departure, and the progress of the invalid had been satisfactory throughout that time. Pulse and temperature had gradually fallen almost to a normal condition, the wound was going on favorably, the patient had tranquil nights, and was able to take a little more nourishment than at the beginning of his illness. And thus there came an hour when the family doctor felt he could no longer forbid the presence of wife and kindred in the sick room. "'We must do nothing rash,' he said to Clare, in the presence of Grace and Dora. "'You may spend an hour or so with Sir Alan today, Lady Darnall, and tomorrow, if all go well, Miss Darnall and Miss Grace might see him, but it had better be one at a time.' "'It is very odd if I cannot see my brother as soon as he is fit to see anyone,' observed Dora, pallid with anger, yet speaking with her accustomed suavity. "'We have been companions for a great many years. I never had a secret from him or he from me.' "'That fact, interesting as it is, would not make your presence less agitating, my dear Miss Darnall,' said the doctor. "'Lady Darnall has the first claim. A wife's claims are paramount, you know, and you and Miss Grace must wait for tomorrow.' And now, Lady Darnall, remember what I have told you about our patient. Not one agitating word, no show of emotion on your part. He is too weak to bear anything of that kind. I will be careful, said Clare, clasping his hand. She was very pale, her lips quivering with nervous excitement, and yet joy beamed in her eyes. The moment so ardently longed for had come at last. The bolted door by which she had watched and listened was no longer to be an impassable barrier between her and her beloved. You can go to him now, said the doctor, but remember, you are to stay only an hour, one hour by the clock. It is just twelve. You will leave him at one. And is that to be all? Am I not to see him again all day? I shall be here in the evening, and if I find there has been no mischief done, if Sir Alan is quite calm and comfortable, I may, well, I will be very indulgent and let you see him again for ten minutes. I will be very obedient, said Lady Jarnall, opening the door as she spoke. She went softly into the room, the spacious, old-fashioned bedchamber, which looked larger in the semi-darkness of half-drawn window curtains and lowered blinds. It was a noble room, furnished with the artistic cabinetwork of the Jacobean era, old walnutwood wardrobes and secretaires, old cherrywood chairs with exquisitely carved backs. The only modern piece of furniture was the low, broad brass bedstead without a vestige of drapery. The wide, deep hearth, with its old blue and white tiles and basket grate and high mantelpiece, was a study for a painter of still life. The window curtains were of old brocade, red and tawny. The room had a look of somber old-world luxury, very pleasant to the eye. The nurse rose and slipped very quietly away to the adjoining dressing room as Lady Darnall approached the bed. Sir Alan was lying with the firelight shining on his face. Oh, what a changed countenance, shrunken, pallid, as with the lines of death. For the first time, Claire understood how near he had been to death. It was almost as if she were looking upon a face she had never seen before. The eyes, those dear eyes that used to gaze upon her with such love, looked at her now with a strange, dim, faraway expression. Shocked, horrified by the extent of the change, so much greater than she had expected, Claire Donnell sunk into a chair by the bedside, waiting, hoping for some little word of greeting from those pale lips, but no such word came. Her husband lifted his eyes to her face and looked at her gravely, mournfully. His wasted, half-transparent hand lay on the silken coverlet. 
She bent and kissed it, but he drew it away the next moment with a quick, nervous gesture as if the touch of her lips offended him. She set to watch upon herself, remembering the doctor's injunctions. "'My beloved,' she murmured softly, "'it is such a happiness to me to see you once again, to be allowed to sit by your bedside for a little while.' There were tears in her voice. The shock of his altered appearance, his strange manner, were alike agitating to her, and she had to be so careful lest her agitation should communicate itself to him. She waited with her heart beating vehemently, waited for some word of loving welcome, in vain. "'You are much better, Alan, Mr. Danvers tells me. You will soon be among us again.' Mr. Danvers is vastly hopeful. How weak and faint his voice sounded, how strangely cold his tone. The house is so dreary without you, she said, tremulously, trying to command herself, not for an instant forgetting the doctor's warning. I have not been downstairs since that awful night. Do you think it was necessary to carry on the comedy so long, he said with a scathing sneer. But I forgot, you are such a skillful actress that the deception would cost you no effort. You, who have deceived me so long, would find no difficulty in hoodwinking the outside world. "'Alan!' she exclaimed, breathlessly. "'Was this delirium?' His words were measured, deliberate, cool as the speech of a judge who calmly discusses the details of crime and wrongdoing. She could not believe that his mind was wandering. The doctor had told her that fever and delirium were past. The patient's extreme weakness was now the only peril, and that weakness made any emotion dangerous. If some dark cloud of suspicion had obscured her husband's mind, if love had been changed into loathing, she dared not question him, she dared not strive to set herself right. She must wait and suffer in patience.' Silently, prayerfully, Clara Darnell sat by her husband's sickbed and listened to the ticking of the clock, to the falling of the wood ashes from the old basket grate. She could pray for her beloved. Yes, that was all she could do in this hour of severance. Severance, albeit she was sitting by his side. She could pray and put her trust in God. She could not believe that any estrangement between herself and her husband could last. Life had been made very bitter to her in the days of her first marriage, a long period of pain and anxiety, growing from bad to worse till it culminated in the tragedy at Mallow Barracks and there had followed further trouble about her son. And then, after she had done with hope, after she had told herself that joy and gladness were not for her, there had come the awakening of a new love, the beginning of a new life, days of exceeding sweetness. Was that bright time all over now, she wondered, and was she to go back into the darkness and pain and desolation? No, she could not believe that fate would be so cruel, that she was to be ever the victim of other people's sins, the scapegoat to suffer for the folly and crime of her belongings. No, all would be well again between herself and her beloved when once she could talk to him freely. He would not revenge upon her the wrongdoing of her son, although it had gone near to cost him his life. She knew Alan Darnell's generous heart too well to believe that. But for the time being, there was a gulf which she dared not attempt to cross. Whatever he might suspect, whatever evil he might think of her, she could not set herself right yet a while. So she sat with folded hands, meekly, quiet as the figure of a saint in a cathedral niche, praying for him whose thoughts had wronged her, praying for the restoration of the confidence and the bliss of old, when he and she had been in all things of one mind. And so the moments stole gently by, till the hour was done, and as the clock struck, she rose to leave the room. "'I must go now, Alan,' she said softly. "'Mr. Danvers only allowed me one hour. Can I get you anything or do anything for you before I go? It would be such a pleasure to me to do some small service.' "'Thanks, you are very kind. No, there is nothing.' He spoke courteously, but as coldly as if he were addressing a stranger." Au revoir, Alan. I may come again to look at you in the evening, perhaps. He did not forbid her to return. He let her depart in silence. He looked after her with sad, reproachful eyes till she was gone, and then turned his head upon the pillow and groaned aloud. Yes, he loved her still. She was as dear to him as she had ever been, she whom he believed to be the falsest and vilest among women, she who had admitted a lover beneath her husband's roof at midnight, a desperado who, seeing his mistress's good name at stake, had tried to murder the husband in order to save the wife. 
Yes, he recalled in this bitter hour, as he had recalled again and again since the awakening from the long agony of delirium, he recalled once again the memory of that hideous night. He remembered how in his sleep, the heavy sleep of fatigue, he had vaguely heard the murmur of two voices in the adjoining room, his wife's voice and another, how, even in sleep, he had wondered at those voices, wondered that his wife should be talking, how, struggling half-consciously to rouse himself, he had at last awakened to hear his wife speaking and a man's voice replying. Then came silence and the sudden shutting of a door. He had risen hurriedly, put on his dressing jacket, and opened the door of the morning room. On the very threshold he stopped, seeing a man standing by the table, a man whose dark, handsome face impressed itself upon him in that one instant. He could recall those dark, flashing eyes, the hectic flush upon hollow cheeks, the haughty carriage of the head, but he could remember no more. He could not have told the man's age or the clothes he wore. The figure stood before him for a moment only, dark, tall, defiant. Then there was a flash, and all was dark. The face had haunted him in his delirium, the figure with pistol pointed at him had pursued him through the dark mazes of fever, and now, as he lay weak as a child, helpless, hopeless, broken-hearted, the dark, evil face was with him still, a haunting presence. And he believed that his wife was false to him, an arch-deceiver from the very beginning of their acquaintance. He believed that she had put aside some dearer love for the sake of the position he was able to offer, and that all her subsequent life with him had been one elaborate comedy, so perfect in its dissimulation that he had lived in a fool's paradise, deeming himself the happiest of men. Then came the preparations for the Italian tour. The lover had heard of this intended journey, had grown desperate, perhaps, at the idea of a prolonged separation, and had insisted on an interview. Urged by an angry man, irrevocably lost by her conduct in the past, Claire Darnell had not stopped short this last infamy. She had admitted her lover at midnight, beneath her husband's roof, and she came to him today in her calm, pale beauty, looking at him with eyes softened by unshed tears. She kissed him with her false lips, she acted her part of shameless hypocrisy to the last, and did not shrink from the man whose heart she had broken, whose life might have been sacrificed to her infamy. If I had died from that wound, she would have married her old lover, married him with his hand red with my blood, married as Mary married Bothwell, he thought, and the settlement which my doting folly secured to her would have made her future days easy, and this is the woman I have trusted, this is the woman whom I gave as a mother to my innocent child. The doctor came in the evening, and was not altogether satisfied with his patient's appearance. "'You look worried,' he said. "'I thought Lady Darnell's visit would have cheered you. "'I expected to see a marked improvement. "'How has he taken his nourishment, nurse?' "'Not over well,' answered a prim little person in grey. "'Sir Alan sent away the partridge, scarcely touched, "'and he only took a spoonful of his custard. "'No use trying to pamper you with dainties,' said the doctor facetiously. "'We shall have to put you back upon Bran's essence if you don't take care. "'Sir Alan must take a plate of invalid turtle for his supper, nurse, "'and you must give him a glass of dry sherry after it.' "'Sir Alan looked supremely indifferent to the supper question.' If Lady Darnell has any idea of coming to see me this evening, you might tell her that she had better not. I do not think I'm strong enough to see people yet, he said presently, while the doctor was feeling his pulse, watch in hand. I don't think you are. You have quite disappointed me, replied Mr. Danvers. Claire was waiting in the corridor when the doctor went out. May I see him again tonight? she asked eagerly. Not tonight. He is very low, out of spirits, altogether depressed, a natural reaction after that violent fever. He must be left to himself for a few days more. And I am not to see him again for a few days, exclaimed Claire dejectedly. "'Come, dear Lady Darnell, I have let you have an hour with him. "'I have been very indulgent, too indulgent, I fear, "'for the result has not been favourable. "'In Sir Alan's extreme weakness, any excitement is bad. "'The threat has been strained to its thinnest point. "'An extra strain might snap it.' "'I will not go near him for a week,' said Clare, bursting into tears. "'He was not himself today. "'If you had not told me that the delirium was over—' "'Oh, his mind is clear enough. That is all right.' "'Is it? Are you sure he is in his right senses?' "'As sure as I can be of anything. "'He is perfectly calm and reasonable this evening.' There is weakness, and there is a profound depression. We can only hope for the return of strength. His spirits will revive as he gets stronger. Good night, Lady Darnell. Good night, she answered despondently, going back to her room.
She still kept herself secluded from the rest of the family. She could not spring herself to return to the common routine of daily life, its irksome forms and ceremonies, the hollow semblance of peace where there was no peace. In the seclusion of her own apartments, she could abandon herself freely to the fever of her soul, could start up from her seats and walk up and down the room, could dull the agony of her heart by quick movement, by restless wandering, in and out from the room to the corridor. Can he doubt me, or does he guess the truth? Does he suspect that it was my son, my reprobate son, who has just missed being his murderer? If he did, he is too generous to blame me for my son's guilt, to accuse me of hypocrisy. Hypocrite, how and why, she asked herself piteously. And then she remembered how, in telling Alan Darnell the history of her unhappy son, she had spoken of him as one whom she believed to be dead. The knowledge that he still lived had come to her very soon after her marriage, and she had kept that knowledge from her husband. That had been her greatest sin. In her agony as a mother, ashamed of the son who only appealed to her for money, whose vices and follies had been a continual drain upon her purse, she had shrunk from the acknowledgment of his existence. She had hoped always to keep him at arm's length, till at last repentance and reform should come, and he should begin a new life in a new land. The new land had been tried and had proved a failure as a means of reform, but he was young enough for the possibility of reformation, and the mother's heart still clung to that hope. In this, and in this only, had she acted as a hypocrite. She had kept the knowledge of this burden to herself. She had kept the secret of this ever-present care, this perpetual dread of what the day might bring forth. This constant anxiety had preyed upon her, undermining her health, making her fitful and low-spirited, and her anxious husband had told himself that it was her womanly pride that suffered, that it was the coldness of his old friends which made her unhappy. I will tell him all, by and by, when he is strong enough to bear an agitating conversation, she said to herself, after long meditation upon her husband's conduct, and if I find that I have lost his love, well, I must bear the blow. It will not be the first of my trials, and it ought to be the last. If that loss do not kill me, nothing can. Second only to the horror of having forfeited her husband's love was the agonizing thought of her son's infamy. A thief, and only by God's mercy a little short of a murderer. He, her only son, had fired upon her husband with the intent to kill him. He had escaped from that house, carrying with him four hundred pounds of money. Where was he now? A felon, a marked man, pursued by detectives, perhaps before long to stand in the felon's dock and to answer for his crime. Then the whole story of his wretched existence, of his mother's bitter burden, would be unfolded for the gratification of the curious, and all those old friends of Sir Alan's who had held themselves aloof from a second wife would say, we did well to suspect this woman's antecedents. The mother of such a son could not be a good woman. Not once in her conversation with Grace had Lady Darnall hinted at her knowledge of the girl's acquaintance with the adventurer who called himself Victor de Camelot. To do that would have been to reveal too much. She was determined to guard her stepdaughter from any future dealings with her son, should he ever again dare to present himself upon the scene. But it was her desire, if possible, to get him out of the country before he was called upon to pay the forfeit of his crime. Miss Darnall's promptitude in putting the case into the hands of the police made her position all the more difficult. Her only hope was that Mr. Penwern, having got upon a false scent, would continue to go astray and would devote himself to the pursuit of Jaker while the real criminal was making his escape. It was not to Dora Darnall that Claire owed her knowledge of Mr. Penwern's movements. That lady went about with locked lips, the very incarnation of secrecy. But in a country house, secrets of this kind pervade the air. Mr. Penwern had been made very comfortable in the housekeeper's room, and, though he had been discreet, he had not altogether been silent. Lady Darnall's maid told her that Jaker was known to have stolen the money, and that Mr. Penwern wanted to stop him from getting off to America. The idea of his guilt had been confirmed by the disappearance of Mrs. Jaker, whose cottage had been found empty one morning, she and her brood of brats having slipped away under cover of darkness, almost as quietly as Robin Goodfellow and his goblin crew. End of chapter 13